Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. This is my 200th episode. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and... You know, I'd say this is a very special episode, but whenever you hear that on TV, tonight on a very special episode of Punky Brewster, it's always lame. Still, I wanted to do something a little different to mark the occasion. Now, I've never done a best of show, partly because you can just go back to the archives at any time and listen to whatever you want. But I thought, you know, I would bring back some segments to give you kind of a sense of the nonsense that I've been doing these last four years. So I've portioned out a couple of interviews. I have a stunt that I pulled for this podcast and a story that I told, which seems to be everybody's favorite and a 10-minute play I'm very proud of, plus a few surprises and rarities. You know the uh, jingle that I always play and some of that quick bumper music between segments? Well, the jingles were made by John Wolford at Jam Productions in Dallas, and the bumpers were done by Bruce and Jason Miller. Bruce did the music for Frasier, among everything else. So a number of these jingles and bumpers have never been heard. So I thought this week I would play them for you. Yeah, they never did stuff like that on Punky Brewster. So that's this week on Hollywood and Levine, and I'm going to start out with the story. Newer listeners probably have not heard this because I told it way back in episode number five. This is my one and only night on WLS Radio in Chicago. WLS. Okay, this is one of those me-in-radio stories. I kind of come off like a jerk in it, but still it's pretty funny and certainly worth sharing with you. WLS was a major monster top 40 AM radio station in the 60s and 70s. It came out of Chicago, and anybody who grew up in the Midwest knows all about the big 89 WLS. But the great thing about that station, by being clear channel, it meant that there were no other stations at night that had the 890 frequency. So when the ionosphere rose and you could pick up signals from distant cities, you could literally get WLS out of Chicago from coast to coast. I grew up in Los Angeles, and especially during the winter, I took my little 
red plastic radio and I would tune very carefully to 89 and there would be Dick Biondi playing the hits for the folks in the Windy City. It was very magical. I mean, the idea that some guy could be in a little studio in Chicago talking into an inverted tomato soup can and 2,000 miles away, I'm able to actually hear it. I mean, that was magical. Of course, today, you can listen to this podcast anywhere in the world. But back then, man, to be on a blowtorch radio station that had that great a signal was unbelievable. Like I said, it was truly magical. Anyway, we go to 1988. And at the time, I'm working on Cheers. And my father, who was an executive in radio, as luck would have it, became the general manager of WLS in Chicago. So uh, he calls me early in the year and says, you know, we'd love for you to bring the family to Chicago for Thanksgiving. And I said, we'd be happy to do it, but only under one condition. Only if you let me do one all-night show on WLS. I always wanted to be on the Big 89. And he said, yeah, sure. He also was the general manager of their FM station, which at the time was doing really well. And he said, hey, I can put you on in the afternoons on the FM station if you want. I said, no, no, you don't get it. I want to be on in the middle of the night, coast to coast, on WLS. And so he said, sure, okay, fine. So we show up at Thanksgiving, and he decides to put me on the air that Wednesday night before from midnight to six. And so I'm very excited and uh, I go down to the station at night and to set things up for you, WLS used to be a station where you had engineers that played all of the records, all of the jingles, all of the commercials, etc., etc., and the disc jockey only turned his microphone on and off. Yeah, those were the days of unions. Well, by 1988, the disc jockey was then running his own board, playing all of his own commercials, all of his own jingles, etc., etc., and so I would be running my own board, which was fine. I've run tons of boards, and as you know, I had been a disc jockey for years. You heard the uh, embarrassing Beaver Cleaver air checks. So the board itself was very standard. You had slide pots, one for the microphone, one to bring up the network news, one to bring up the phone if you wanted to talk to anybody on the phone, and the others for the cartridge machines to play all of the music, jingles, promos, commercials, etc. By 1988, you didn't play records, you played cartridges, and uh, they were very easy. You just... uh, put them in the slot and hit the button and away they went. So that was the scene and I show up at the radio station at like 11.30 to go on the air at midnight and I see that the disc jockey has a memo that my father had written and my father had said this, attention, my son Ken will be filling in doing the all night show tonight. He didn't say Ken Levine will be filling in doing the all-night show. He said, my son. And, of course, the disc jockey on duty, and I do not remember his name. I feel bad. I owe this guy a dinner. 
Uh, you'll see why when I tell you the rest of the story. But um, he saw that, and he obviously figured, okay, this is some sort of vanity thing where the uh, general manager is going to let his kid go on a 50,000-watt radio station, uh, gets to play records for the first time in his life. So... Uh, so I show up, and he says, uh, hmm, listen, um, i got to leave at like 12.15, and there's no engineer here. We're going to have to get somebody in here to uh, run the board for you. And I said, because uh, I, I could figure out quickly what was going on, and I decided to have a little fun with this guy. So I said, oh, no, 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 Dad said that I could run my own board, that I could do it all myself. He goes, okay. And I said, so how do we do it? What do we do? And he says, well, okay, this is the control board. And I said, uh, where are the records? And he goes, no, no, we don't play records anymore. See, all of the songs are on cartridges. And I'm like, cartridges? What are those? You know, and he's like already starting to sweat. He goes like these, and he holds up one of the cartridges, which looks like a pack of cigarettes. And again, I knew full well what cartridges were. And he says, uh, okay, this is the cartridge. And I say, great, where do they go? And he says, uh, in these slots. See, we have eight cart machines. I mean, that was state-of-the-art back in 1988. Today, everything is on computer, and, and this is all completely obsolete. So I said, oh, okay, well, give me a second here. Let me take some notes. And by now, this poor guy is just dying. Again, WLS, 50,000-watt powerhouse, and this imbecile is going on the air unsupervised. So I go, okay, got it. Carts go in those slots. And he says, all right, now on the board, here are numbers corresponding to the cart machines. So if you put something in cart five, it's number five on the board. Number five on the board. Got it. He's like biting his lip and he goes, okay, you turn the volume up and down with these slide pots. And I go, volume, that's what, how loud it is? He's just ready to kill my dad by this point. He goes, yes, that's how loud it is. You press the red button, and it goes on the air. Simple enough. Where's the microphone button? That would be pot one. Okay, well, how do I hear the songs? He goes, well, you have these headphones. That's what they're for. No disrespect, but um, have you ever seen a radio show before? And I was very indignant. I said, of course I have. It's just that Dr. Johnny Fever didn't wear headphones when he heard the music. And this is just one of the many inaccuracies of WKRP in Cincinnati, by the way. And he said, yeah, well, you're going to need headphones. Okay, so by now, it was pretty much time for him to sign off and go to the five minutes of ABC Contemporary News at 55. So he does that, and he goes to the news, and he has me sit down. And I go, uh, okay, all right. Now, at the top of the hour, what do I do? And he says, you play a jingle. And I go, great. Which one? And he says, the one that says top of the hour. Oh, 
okay. He says, what's your first record? And I go, uh, you mean cartridge, don't you? Cartridge. He says, yes, yes, what's your first cartridge? So I selected some song and uh, very, very tentatively uh, put it into the machine. And he says, okay, now what you have to do when the news is over, you pot down the news here, you play the jingle here, and when it sings WLS Chicago, right after you hear Chicago, you play the, rec- the, the cartridge. Okay, wait, I got to write this down. Whoa, she's news. This is a jingle, Chicago cartridge. Uh, when do I turn my microphone on? He says, well, once the song starts. I said, well, and then I'm to, p- pushing two buttons at once. And he goes, well, look, you can turn it on earlier or later, whatever you want. Okay, let me give this a try. So sweat is pouring off this poor guy. So the news ends. I turn on my microphone, I look at my notes, I pot down the news, fire the jingle, blast the song, and when I hear the song, I go, it is 12 o'clock in Chicago. My name is Ken Levine. Yes, I use my real name for this one. I have been on the radio in Bakersfield, San Bernardino, Detroit, New York, San Francisco, San Diego, and Los Angeles, but never at the same time. This is WLS. And I talked right up to the vocal and turned the microphone off. And he goes, you asshole, you've done this before. I said, yes, of course. Do you think my father is going to put someone on a 50,000-watt radio station who's never been on the radio before? Well, uh, again, for the life of me, I don't know the name of that disc jockey. And this is a worldwide public apology. And by the way, being on WLS in the middle of the night was as totally super cool as I thought it would be. It was amazing. I was taking calls from people in Iowa and Florida and Georgia and California. It was just an amazing experience being on the Big 89. That was my one and only time on WLS. Over the last four years, I have interviewed 63 different individuals, some multiple episodes, and I'm going to play a couple of snippets from two of them as just kind of an example of the type of interviews I do. I also want to run down the list of the people who I interviewed. And uh, the reason I'm doing this is because all of these programs are available on the archive. So if you missed one, you might hear a name and you go, oh, wow, wow, he interviewed that guy? I'd like to hear that. So you'll go back. So here are all of the people that I interviewed. Uh, Would it surprise you to know a lot, a lot of writers? Uh, David Pollack, who talked about working with Patty Chayefsky. Jeff Greenstein, talking about the formation of Friends. My partner, David Isaacs. Robin Schiff, who wrote Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Kevin Smith. Tom Caltabiano of Everybody Loves Raymond. Winnie Holzman, who wrote the book for Wicked. David Goodman, who is not just a writer, but he is the president of the Writers Guild. Annie Levine and John Emerson, who are now working on an ABC show. Tom Straw, who did Night Court, Nurse Jackie, and is also a best-selling author. Thief Sutton, 
who did Cheers with us, also did Boston Legal and has written a number of movies. Matt Myra, who is on The Goldbergs. Mark Evanier, blogger supreme, and he was on Welcome Back, Cotter, uh, Pink Lady, and Jeff. Some great stories there. Uh, some terrific credits for Mark Evanier. Billy Diamond, who worked on Wings and Murphy Brown and also wrote a lot of shows for Russia. Earl Pomerantz, who worked on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Cheers, Taxi, the late Earl Pomerantz. That's a wonderful interview. Nell Scavell who also worked on Murphy Brown and the Larry Sanders Show. Tracy Newman, who worked with me on Cheers, uh, created According to Jim. Dennis Palumbo, now a therapist, but he was a writer. And among his credits, one of my favorite movies, My Favorite Year. Howard Michael Gould, a screenwriter and TV writer, and he did uh, a number of of shows and has a movie coming out uh, that's going to star Mel Gibson here probably in a couple of months. Bob Ellison, maybe the greatest punch-up guy ever. David Lee, one of the creators of Frasier and Wings. Jay Kogan spent a lot of time on The Simpsons, also won an Emmy on Frasier. Billy Van Zant, who worked with Bob Newhart, Don Rickles, Richard Lewis, a lot of great stories. Bill Persky, who was one of the producers of the Dick Van Dyke Show. And just recently, Rob Long, who worked on Cheers and many other shows as well. Got some directors that I interviewed, including the great Jim Burroughs, Katie Gerritsen, Andy Barnacle, David Lee, and Kevin Smith. Had some actors and celebrities as well. Angelian, Nancy Travis, Barry Gilpin. That's a fun interview because she basically interviews me. Jamie Farr of MASH. Debbie Gibson, Susie Meister, reality star. Ben Mankiewicz from TCM and comedian Jeff Cesario. And I've had a number of TV executives and movie producers, including Preston Beckman, John Pike, Michael Uslan, and Steve LeBlanc. I got into voiceover artists with Randy Thomas. You hear her on the Oscars. Bob Bergen, who does a lot of animated voices, including Porky Pig, and Neil Ross. Some sportscasters, Al Michaels from NBC. Also, Josh Lewin, now the voice of UCLA, formerly with the Mets and Texas Rangers, Chicago Cubs, and San Diego Chargers. Also, Dan Horde, who is the voice of the Cincinnati Bengals and uh, Cincinnati Bearcats. I've had some radio personalities, including Shotgun Tom Kelly, who has a star on the Hollywood Rock of Fame. He is on Sirius XM. Uh, Charlie Van Dyke, who does all those voiceovers. He's the voice of God. And Deke Duncan, who is the guy from England who has his bedroom station and has had one for 45 years. Some of my more popular guests were media consultants. One was Blair Richwood and also Valerie Geller. I've had some broadcast journalists, including Arlen Peters, Greg Airbar, and Cara Mayer-Robinson. And to round things up, I had TV critic Alan Sepinwall from Rolling Stone, uh, one of the great warm-up men of television, Stu Shosak, the Dick Van Dyke Show historian Vince Waldron, 
Casting director Sheila Guthrie, improv director Andy Goldberg. I had a magician on, Bruce Calver. Also, the composer, Bruce Miller. And finally, Jeopardy! champion, Jennifer Quayle. Well, the first interview that I want to play back for you is a portion of one that I did with filmmaker Kevin Smith. And this was kind of fun because he had a podcast as well, and we did a crossover episode where for the first half, I did his, and they were simulcast, and for the second half, uh, he did mine. So here is a portion of my interview with Kevin Smith. So let me ask you, are you a writer who directs, or are you a director who also writes? A writer who directs. I've never felt like a director in my life. I I don't consider myself a director, and neither do most of the critics who talk about my work. (laughs) Um, First and foremost, I mean, this sounds highfalutin. I've only come to this later in life, but storyteller covers everything. You know, if I podcast, if I'm writing a movie or even directing a movie or or, uh, doing the TV show, like uh, Comic Book Man, the show we have on AMC, jumping over and directing an episode of The Goldbergs on Matt's show... It's just storytelling. But first and foremost, it's writing for me. Like if somebody put a gun in my head and said, pick one. At this point, I'd probably pick podcasting because it's even easier than writing. Yeah, writing's hard. Writing is hard. This is easy. And I've done it for years. I've been writing since I was like, what, nine or something? But podcasting, I've only been doing for 10 years. And I like that because it is, it's like the closest, I'm not a musician, but podcasting is the closest you come to jazz the way i understand it because you're having this conversation and you pick up the notes and it's the notes that aren't played and so forth and so on writing is a solitary act i know you've written with people and you write with people but for me it's always been very masturbatory me alone in a room going this makes me feel good and then (laughs) i take it one step further because i knew early on even as a kid that nobody was ever going to take my scripts and turn them into something too many far too many clever people out there good writers with great stories to tell that deserved like cinematic treatment to be realized from script to screen. So when I saw Richard Linklater's movie Slacker, and I said, oh my God, this motherfucker, he just made a movie. He don't give a fuck. He doesn't know anybody. He's in Texas. Bumblefuck Texas. He ain't New York. He ain't fucking California. He's making flicks. That was inspiring to me enough to go, okay, now I can write a flick. I used to be like, I'll never write a script because nobody would ever make it. Who would I give it to? What would I do? But after I saw Slacker, I was like, okay, you can write a script, and as long as it's doable, you can shoot that thing as well. You can make it and bring it to life. So it wouldn't just be something you worked on and sat in a fucking drawer. Manufacture for use is a big part of my process. Like, don't do it and then just let it sit there. That's why I could never be like a studio writer because... I have friends who have like, I got 10 scripts that I sold and I live off of and they're unproduced. And I'm like, what? Like, how can you live like that? But they're like, I can live like that. That's how I make my living. But I came in through a different door. I didn't come through the traditional path. I made something and it worked out. And suddenly people are like, what do you want to do next? So Miramax picked up that first movie. We Which was Clerks. 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 Yeah. And then from there forward, people would be like, what do you want to do? So it became... Fright, frighteningly easy. So you wrote that script. Now, do you outline? No, God. With Clerks, that was just, um, let me think about my average day on the store and then just make it more entertaining. Or all the greatest bits of me working at convenience stores over the years, I'll compile into one day. And I still don't outline. I, I outlined for the first time fairly recently because I had a TV project that was episodic in, in nature and they asked as part of the process. BBC America was like, we want to know the story of the back seven episodes and all that shit. So I actually had to sit down and be like, all right, where does this thing go? Right. But that's like not even traditional television. 
Whereas, you know, you, you're doing one long movie when you're doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, you're getting to plot it from start to finish. So, you know, I guess a, an outline was helpful for everyone to see where you thought about going. And it was also helpful for me as a writer. But I doubt I would ever commit to that. Like, I wrote Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, which is a sequel to Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And I wasn't like, I better break out the cards and figure this fucker out. Because, <laughs> because a lot rides on this. The intellectualism alone. So, you know, some shit you just dive into and write from the gut. But that one, I had to actually be methodical about it as per their process, not mine. So are your first drafts usually very long? I never have a first. uh, I do have a first draft, of course, but it's not the traditional first draft of like, you know, here's 140 pages and I'll trim it down. Uh, What I tend to do is write uh, until like I don't feel like writing anymore and then go back and smoke and read and, and revise within. So I'll start a scene that goes 10 pages and then... Over the course of a day or two days, I will shrink it, but not by virtue of the fact, like, this has to come down, but you just read it, and you're like, all right, that wasn't that funny. Let me change this. Let me change this. It would be funny if I layered this in here. And so rewrite it and bring it down the process. So nobody ever really sees the a true first draft of what I do. They see the first full script, but right. I kind of revise as I write. So by the time it gets to people, it reads closer to something that's finished. Now, I outline because I need to know where I'm going. That helps. And even though, uh, and of course, I'm from television where you have to, you know, Frasier episodes are only 20 minutes and they're very intricately well, there's, plotted. There's also a reason why they're, they're wonderful, funny, and stand the test of time. Like a lot of shit I do won't stand the test of time. A lot of those Frasier episodes will stand the test of time because somebody put thought into it. It wasn't just like, <laughs> I'm going to sit down and say some funny shit. Because when you sit down and say some funny shit, it could just be funny culturally in the moment. Right. When you sit down and write a Frasier, you guys weren't going like, let's make Millie Vanilli jokes because everyone knows who that is. Like, you guys didn't dive deep into pop culture. Every once in a while, there'll be a Star trek type thing. But you kept it cultural, not pop cultural. And that's why you can pop that show on now. And it never feels dated other than when Matt points out nobody would wear two-button suits or something like that. <laughs> but, and the we pointed lack- it out at the time. <laughs> yeah. And the distinct lack of cell phones, I guess. But generally speaking, there's something to be said for outlining. You'll come up with a more quality piece of work that will probably stand the test of time far longer. But I was never interested in quality, just quantity. Like, I just wanted to make as much as I could. And the moment they picked up the first thing I did, that opened the door this much. And I was like, I'm just going to keep going. It was never about, I want to win an Oscar. I want to make something fucking good. Or I want to make something classic. I just wanted to produce. Because the longer you produce, the longer you can stay in the room. They don't kick you out. Okay, moving on. I had never done stand-up comedy before. Never had a desire to, actually. But I thought, as a stunt for this podcast, I would try it. So I signed up for an open mic night at a club where nobody knows me. Now, I told you guys that I would record it and play it back unedited and not doctored. If I bombed, I bombed. And when I got off the stage, I said, bucket list check. One of the other comedians came up to me and said, wow, so now that you've done it, you know, you've been bitten by the bug, right? You know, you can't wait to get up there and do it again. I said, no, no. This was my debut and my retirement. It was recorded at the open door in the San Fernando Valley. And my thanks to Susan Segar for setting it up. And so here, once again, in its entirety, is my one and only stand-up routine. All right. You guys know what time it is. 
depending upon how this goes, it might be Adam. Uh, well, uh, first of all, everything that I'm about to tell you is true. These are all true stories. I was in the Army Reserve uh, to get out of Vietnam. Yes, I'm a millennial, but from the other century. And I had to go through basic training, through regular Army basic training. And I was sentenced to uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri in the Ozarks, and my drill sergeant was like right out of central casting, you know, just the redneck, stupid, Jew-hating, Neanderthal, future Trump supporter. And uh, he had trouble pronouncing Levine. He couldn't pronounce Levine. He pronounced it Veen. <laughs> but it was actually Veen, you fucking done. But really, my... God-given name, as far as he was concerned, was Vin, you fucking done, I'm going to run you every fucking where you go. That's what he called me the whole time. I'd say, uh, what time is chow? Vin, you fucking done, I'm going to run you every fucking where you go, noon. <laughs> this guy, he, he would have joined the KKK, but he couldn't spell it. <laughs> and... <laughs> And he hated me. I, you know, like I was tall. I was one of them boys from the college, and I was uncoordinated, and I was Jewish. And he used to say to me, "V, you fucking dud. I don't want to hear any more your chazarai." <laughs> no. We'd be information, and he would say, uh, "All Hebraic personnel, please fall out." I was like. Wait, it's just me. It's like the nearest Jew is St. Louis. <laughs> but but they, they hated me. I mean, look, I did break a lot of the rules. One of the rules that we had there was you couldn't go to the PX, which was the army store, just Costco without the samples. But, you know, it's like if your mother sent you stuff, from home, they had to let you keep it because it was sent through the U.S. mail. But otherwise, you could not go to the store. Why? Harassment. Army. Why? So, I was always so hungry after chow that I would sneak over to the PX and I'd buy a bag of cookies and I could eat an entire bag of cookies in one night. And at the time, not gain any weight. It was the all marching with dumb shits everyday diet. But um, I literally, I'd eat a bag of cookies a night. So one night, I'm in the barracks, and there were eight of us, seven other guys, and they were cramming really hard for the test the next day on how to salute. And I'm reading Chaucer. And, and the drill sergeant and company commander come in. And there's a snap inspection. A bayonet was missing. So we all had to stand up by our lockers. And I stand by mine. And again, true story, they open the locker, an entire bag of Oreos cascades down on the company commander's feet. And the drill sergeant goes, Fiend, you fucking dud. You know the rules. No cookies unless they're from home. I said, sir, my mother works for Nabisco. <laughs> I was cleaning with dreams for two months. And then I, I also had to qualify for, for my weapon. Uh, this is the thing. I had to shoot a, a rifle, me, shooting a rifle. I have no depth perception. Uh, I probably won't even be able to see the light. And uh, so I need 12 hits 
to qualify. Because if you don't qualify, what happens is they recycle you. You have to do it again. And this was night fire. And the target was pretty close. The target was pretty much like where the gentleman in the orange shirt is sitting, uh, which isn't too bad. And you had 60 rounds. But it was night fire, so it was pitch black. And you had to shoot machine gun style. And you were lying on the ground. So what I did to hedge my bet, I went up to the two sharpshooters, and I said, look, you guys don't want to get good scores because they're going to send you right to Vietnam. And they were like, oh, I haven't thought of that. You know, these are not chess masters. So I said, uh, okay, tell you what. You get on this side of me, and you get on this side of me, and both of you shoot at my target. So now I have 180 rounds that are pumped in the direction of my target. 180. Okay, guess how many hits I got on my target. Huh? 50. 50? No? Zero. Zero. Okay, so now the lights come up, and I'm standing by my target, and the drill sergeant is down the way, and he's got his uh, clipboard, and he's like marking off everybody's scores, and I'm getting panicked. So I take a big pen out of my jacket, and I just start stabbing the target. Okay? And he comes up to me and he looks at it. He's like, what the fuck is this? And I go, it's the experimental bullets, drill sergeant. I, I don't know. It's, it's a top secret. Uh, I, I, it was very strange. And fortunately, they, they passed me because otherwise I would be there today. And um, I do have to say, though, that the Army did kind of help give me a career because, as he mentioned, I went on and became the head writer of MASH, and then a few years later, I won um, an Emmy. People always ask, what is it like when you're standing up there and you win an Emmy, and there's an audience, and you're on camera, and you know that millions of people are watching you. And again, this is an absolute true story. So as I'm giving my speech, I'm thanking my family and everything, what's going through my head is, I hope you motherfuckers from Delta 5-2 are watching this. <laughs> okay. uh, that fucking dud is up there, and you boys are going to have to put up with my chazarai one more time. Thank you. Okay, I told you at the top of the broadcast that I'd have a surprise. Well, here it is. I am going to give away a PDF of a Cheers script that David Isaacs and I wrote to anybody who writes me and requests it. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. We won the Writers Guild Award for this, for the best half-hour comedy script, and we beat out Seinfeld. And to this day, Larry David is pissed. And I always say to him, Larry, I tell you what, just give me 1% 
of the Seinfeld prophets, and I will give you the award. I will even have my name scratched out and insert yours. So that's the script. It's called Rat Girl. And if you want one, all you got to do is just email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Time for another interview segment. This is with Al Michaels. And Al Michaels is arguably the top sportscaster in America and has been the top sportscaster in America for many, many years. He has announced World Series and 10 Super Bowls. He is the voice of Sunday Night Football on NBC. And I was fortunate enough to be able to sit down and chat with him for two episodes. And here is just a small portion of one of those interviews. I've had the job that I can't tell you how many millions of uh, people would love to have had. And I was the anointed one and the blessed one who who got this job. And I never forgot it. And uh, it's great. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't believe in reincarnation, but I wrote it in the book. If there is such a thing and God wanted to get even with me in my next life, I will be working in a sulfur mine <laughs> in Mongolia. Not only that, I'll be on the night shift, and that'll make up for this life. <laughs> One final quick question. How well do you sleep before the night you have to do a Super Bowl? Pretty much the same as any night sleep. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of like up and, you know, two or three times during the night. I mean, it's just the normal pattern. Um Early in my career, yeah, I mean, it was very exciting because I don't know how much I slept before that uh, uh, 1972 World Series when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It's going to be you know, an unbelievable experience and all of that. I can't remember, but it's pretty much the same right now because I guess it's experience, it's having been there and all of the rest. Um, you know, it's more an excitement than it is a nervousness. Uh, you're anxious. You know, it's funny, the, the Super Bowl, for instance, is a, an event that is watched by, you know, 100 million to 110 million or more people, and I've done 10 of them now. Wow. And it was pretty, I know it's like crazy over a 30-year period. We get it every three years. And I think that um, people say, are you nervous? And it's. I think it's like I've heard players say, Game starts, and yeah, there's an excitement and all. And then the game starts, and then the first play is this contact, and then you, you kind of fall settle in. Yeah. It's the same thing for me on the Super Bowl uh, or any big event that I've done. You know, you're excited. You want to, you know, get get off to a good start. I liken it to a horse race, and you're a horse, and you're coming out of the gate, mm-hmm. and you don't want to stumble. You don't want to throw the jockey. Mm-hmm. You want to you want to get off to you want to break cleanly and if you can get off to that good start and then you're rolling i mean that first world series uh, you know like i say i, I could, I'm, I'm just hoping that air will come out of my mouth coming on camera and then by the seventh game in the ninth inning man i'm right at home this is this, <laughs> this is great this is an e-ride at disneyland plus so it's just it's getting into the rhythm getting into the groove and once it goes you've been there before and it's uh, very exciting 
Hope you enjoyed that. Well, from time to time, I like to share unsold pilots and short plays that I've written. And here's one of my favorites. It's called The Fugitive, and it stars Penny Pizer and Andy Goldberg. It was recorded at the Sherry Theater in North Hollywood in July of 2018. So just picture a married couple sitting on the couch watching TV. The wife has her laptop on her lap, and here is The Fugitive. The Fugitive is on. Boy, that's when you know we have 6,000 channels. Okay, it's on channel uh, 982, but that's not the point. I loved The Fugitive when I was a kid. You and my parents. Now, there was a premise. Dr. Richard Kimball, falsely accused of murdering his wife, escapes and runs around the country searching for a one-armed man he saw leave the scene. Relentlessly pursued by Lieutenant Gerard, who will stop at nothing to capture him. Brought to you by Jello. <laughs> you want to watch a 50 year old program? Yeah, come on, it'll be fun. Keep searching. Maybe you'll find a Today Show from 1953. <laughs> Seriously, come on, what could have hurt to spend an hour going back to a simpler time? Back when we thought we could change the world and didn't know yet that we would. But horribly. <laughs> Fine, watch The Fugitive. Don't worry, you'll still get your six hours a day of NCIS. <laughs> watch The Fugitive. Oh, look, the, the key to enjoying this is losing yourself. Let the show transport you to another time, another place. Another dress size. <laughs> God, we're old. We're not old. This was 50 years ago, and we remember it. We're American Gothic. Can you please just immerse yourself? Okay. Consider me immersed. Thank you. Oh, wow. Tuesday Weld. <laughs> what are you doing? I, I, I'm, I'm checking to see how old she was then. Well, no, no, come on. Just let the nostalgia wash over you. It'll only take a second. She was born in 1943, so, uh, 22. How do you just know that? Immerse yourself. You're not immersing. You still have a thing for Tuesday Weld. She's a marvelous... What porn do you watch late at night? She's a marvelous actress. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-uh. What year was Judy Dench born? <laughs> Valerie, come on. Sorry. <laughs> who, who played the fugitive again? David Jan- somebody? Uh, Jansen. David Jansen. Oh. He's a good-looking guy. You think so? I don't have his birth date memorized, but yeah. <laughs> he died young, you know. I wasn't planning on contacting him. Can we just watch? Come on, we're missing all the story turns. What story turns? Every week it was the same thing. He changes his name. He takes a crappy job as a truck driver or a lumberjack. He almost gets caught, but at the last minute, some person he operated on in a ditch helps him escape. Now brought to you by Humera. 
<laughs> There's more to it than that. He's searching for the one-armed man. So why doesn't he just flee to Tahiti, tend bar, and pay a private detective to look for him? Why stick around and shovel shit in Louisiana? <laughs> because the detective won't know the right one-armed man. Well, he can take photos. It's not like the guy had two arms but looked sort of Jewish. <laughs> yeah, like there are 72 murders a week in the Navy that only NCIS can solve. <laughs> They also have jurisdiction over the Marines, Tom. <laughs> but I, I, I will stop now. We, we can watch quietly and appreciate all the story turns, such as they are. <laughs> Thank you. That sheriff, who is that guy? We've seen him like a million times. Tuesday's taking off her mittens. You're missing it. <laughs> it's going to drive me crazy. How are you going to look it up? Fat Sheriff on Fugitive? Yeah, here, IMDB, Fugitive, Weld, Crosscheck, and... Okay, yeah, I got it. Here, Andrew Tomlinson. Let me click on his page and see what he's done. Ah, the drug mule on Hawaii Five-O. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. What? He was only 56 when he died. How old was David Jansen? Check. <laughs> Yikes. 48. You're kidding. Mm, heart attack. He was still a kid. Well, to us. Thank God he had this show. At least he's remembered for something. On channel 982. Uh, still, it's a legacy. The show is probably what killed him. What? Every week he was wading through swamps or outrunning dogs. Look, look, there he's carrying Tuesday Weld up the mountain. She may be 95 pounds, but believe me, by take six, she was a piano. <laughs> well, he can't be under that much strain. He's smoking. <laughs> and how come he never changes his appearance? Huh? You'd think he'd grow a beard, wear glasses. No wonder everybody spots him every week. He could make extra cash going to crime conventions signing his wanted posters. The man has dimples, Valerie. No leading man who has dimples ever wears a beard. I swear you know nothing about Hollywood. He could wear his hair long. He wouldn't get kicked out of show business for that. Honey, look... Darling, the statute of limitations on criticizing TV series is like 40 years, so I think they're okay. Well, these, these are good things to know if they ever do a reboot. But they have done reboots, movies, TV shows. Oh, that's, that's right. We saw that movie yeah. on, on Channel 861, I believe. <laughs> who, who starred in it again? Harrison Ford. Ah, yes. And he had a beard. A, no dimples. Yes, he does. And B, he dove off a dam 15,000 feet and survived. Sure, he's Indiana Jones. I don't care if he's Wonder Woman. He'd be dead. You know, now that I think about it, the fugitive is really just Les Miserables, but with, without the songs. What? Well, a Frenchman escapes prison. The police inspector is after him. And it's a French Revolution, so lots of guys end up with one arm. Where's Victor Hugo's Emmy? 
This may be the dumbest conversation we've ever had. <laughs> and in the movie, Hugh Jackman also had a beard and dimples. Maybe Kimball assumed that everyone would think he'd grow a beard, and that's what they'd be looking for. So to stay ahead of everyone, he didn't grow a beard. <laughs> now it's the dumbest conversation we've ever had. Can we just watch the show? Wow, Humira does sponsor this. <laughs> well, you could get tuberculosis from that? <laughs> Who gets tuberculosis these days? I'm sure someone later on this show. Do I have to go watch it in the kitchen? No, no. I'm immersing. But you're not. Christ, the guy playing the deputy... He was 60 when he died. <laughs> what do you care? Well, don't you find it a little strange all these people died at an early age? Not at all. Tuesday Weld is still alive. There's still hope for you and her when it's lights out at the senior center. <laughs> Look, the desk clerk lasted until 87, but the ranch hand was only 59 when he died. The third leading cause of death in 1965, appearing on The Fugitive. It's not funny. Life expectancy wasn't as high back then. Yeah, but it wasn't 59. This is like they filmed the show next to a nuclear reactor. Just let the nostalgia wash over you. When we were kids, living until our 60s seemed like forever. Tom, everybody smoked back then and drove without seatbelts and ate White Castle. How many of those people would have lived another 20 years if they had the medical advances we have now? So relax. You should live well into your 80s. Just don't swan dive off the Hoover Dam or take Humira. You know, it's like we're all fugitives. What? Trying to escape time. Lieutenant Gerard is time, and the one-armed man is White Castle. That's it. No more shows before 2007. And beards and disguises won't help. We can't hide from Lieutenant Gerard. Hell, we can't hide from Google Maps. Tom, you're getting crazy. You were right, Val. We are old. We are not. People we thought were old, but who were actually young, are dead, and we're older than them. So where does that leave us? Well... You apparently in skilled nursing and me in Hawaii. Why can't you be scared shitless like me? Just once. Because I'd rather be grateful. We are still here and we're healthy. Well, aside from all the bullshit we get at our age, but healthy enough. I don't know about you, but I plan on being around a lot longer. Lieutenant Gerard is not going to get me. I wear a Fitbit. <laughs> Trust me In 20 years When we're watching today's shows On nostalgia channels We'll long for the days We were this age You know what That's true That's very true Absolutely That was then And, and, and this is now Right We've been given a gift We have Yes In a sense We're young we Young. Hey, 65 is the new 57. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Valerie. God, this is such a relief. <laughs>
We're young. And still have our teeth. <laughs> we can do anything. Hell, hell, we can even go to Disneyland. That's how young we are. Right. Really? Yeah, let's do it. Come on, let's go to Disneyland. We'll take a couple of days. It'll be fun. Screw you, Lieutenant Gerard. Yeah, I'm the fugitive, but the movie fugitive. And this time, my new fake name will be Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh. What? Oh. What? I, I was just thinking, you know, on that Indiana Jones ride, they have that sign that says this is a turbulent, violent attraction. And if you have heart problems or you're over 65, it is not recommended. Yeah. <laughs> Harrison Ford can no longer go on the Indiana Jones ride. <laughs> okay, we're old. We are so old. We are not. No, no, we're ancient. We're fossils. What else is on? Where's the remote? Oh, ow. Oh, I think I hurt my back. Oh, okay. oh. Maybe I do need to marry. <laughs> And uh, as we wrap up episode 200, I would like to thank, as always, Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. Now, um, to go out, I'm going to play, as I mentioned at the top of this broadcast, a medley of my jingles and musical bumpers that you don't normally hear. Okay. <laughs> On to the next 200. Enjoy, stay safe. Thanks again so much for listening over these last four years. Please stay safe. Talk to you next week. cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader